right, so in today's passage, uh, we come to the final part of the exchange between Paul and the imagined Jewish antagonist. This section that we're going to look at this morning presumes that based on the first eight verses of chapter 3 that the arrogant Jewish antagonist will seize on Paul's affirmation that there is some advantage to being a Jew and that armed with that knowledge, Paul expects that the antagonist will fall back on the argument then that the Jew is superior to the Gentile and somehow that exempts him from the judgment of God. Because he has an advantage, then he must have an advantage in judgment. But Paul concludes this important portion of the letter with a a series of quotations from Scripture that hammer home the point that all people are sinners, that though the Jew has an advantage, it's not an advantage that, that, that uh, excuses him from the judgment of God. It's not an advantage that excuses him from responsibility to God. Amen? So what we're going to see, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 20 this morning. The reason we're taking such a large portion of scriptures because a lot of this is quotation from the Old Testament where Paul now goes to scripture to to firm up and round off his argument and firm up his point that all men are sinners. For him, it is important that the readers of this letter, letter are clear about this. Unless there is something to be saved from, then there is no point in preaching salvation. Unless there's something to be delivered from, then there's no need to preach deliverance. Why would you want to be saved if there's nothing that you're being saved from? And Paul's point is all of us, every man, woman, and child that ever lived, all of us are sinners. We all need to be saved. We all are bound by sin. There's something that we all need to be delivered from. Amen? So in this passage, he shows us that it's, it's not just his private opinion, but it is an opinion that's grounded in Scripture. It's founded on the Word of God. And the final conclusion of the matter, when you consider the Scripture, is that the whole world is guilty before God. The text is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. We'll read that together, beginning with verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they've used deceit. The poison of asps is in their lips, or is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and their way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God. Sorry, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, 
that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So begin by verse 9. It says, What then are they? Are we better than they? No and no wise, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentiles that they are all under sin. So Paul has said before that we're all under sin. There is an advantage to being a Jew, but that advantage does not include being excused from the judgment of God. The, the arrogant Jew, the antagonist may say, well, then are we any better than they are? And Paul's answer is going to be not at all. He makes the statement that, that embodies the main thrust of this segment of the letter. When it comes to the judgment of God, no one is superior to anyone else. We are all under sin. We are all guilty as charged. None of us stands above anybody else. I once heard J.T. Pugh say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us is any higher than any other at the foot of the cross. None of us is any better than anybody else. Nobody's sin is greater than or lesser than somebody else's sin. When we stand at the foot of the cross, we're all sinners, amen. We're all guilty. Every man, woman, and child is guilty of the offense of sin. We've all fallen short. We're all guilty as charged, and we all desperately need the blood of Jesus. That's Paul's point here. When it comes to the cross, the Jew is no better than the Gentile. When it comes to the cross, the rich is no better than the poor. When it comes to the cross, the educated has no advantage over the uneducated. When it comes to the cross, we all stand on level ground. And we are all guilty. All of us are under sin. Now the phrase under sin also appears in Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 where Paul says that all are under sin. It appears also in Romans chapter 7 and verse 14 where Paul says that the carnal man is sold under sin. The phrase under sin doesn't just mean that we have sinned. It doesn't just mean that we have committed an offense of the law. It doesn't just mean that we've committed a transgression. It means that the entire human race has fallen under the dominion of sin. And every human being has come under the control of a sinful nature. The idea of being under sin views sin as a tyrant, as a ruler, as uh, the one that has enslaved humanity. Sinners are enslaved by sin. They are enslaved by sinful lust. They're under sin's dominion, and they cannot break free on their own. They are a slave, and they can't make themselves free. Now, verses 10, and 12, 10 through 12 we're going to take together. This starts the portion where Paul is quoting from Scripture. He begins that with, as it is written, let you know this is a quotation. And what he's going to do here through verse 18, from 10 to 18, is string together a series of quotes out of Scripture to reinforce his point. And we'll start with 10 through 12 because they come from uh, the same passage. It says, as it is written, 
There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together, become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So to prove his point, Paul turns to the Old Testament, and he quotes Scripture. This first quotation is from a passage that appears twice in the book of Psalms. It appears in Psalms 14, verses 1 through 3. It also appears in a very similar fashion in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. And the quote here is not an exact quote of either passage, but it contains the gist of both passages. Paul starts by saying, There is none righteous, no, not one. These words don't actually appear anywhere in those three verses out of the Psalms in either place. They appear to be Paul's summary of the meaning of those passages. This is kind of him summing it all up. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's not one righteous person, not even one. That's the point. And the, the passage here, this quotation from Psalms, begins with that declaration and ends with that declaration. This this verses 10 through 12 starts with, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And it ends with verse 12. There is none none that doeth good, and again, no, not one. So he couches between that declaration that nobody is righteous, not even a single person. In between that, he gives the loose quotation of the psalm. He starts with, there is no one who understands. Because surely if you understood what you were doing, you wouldn't sin. Surely if you understood that the, 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 the cost and what it, where it's going to take you and what it does to your life. Surely no one who understands would choose sin. Likewise, he says, there's no one who seeks God. Sinners don't look for God. They're not seeking God out. They're too busy seeking out other things. They're too busy pursuing the lust, the thing that they're, they're bound to. They're too busy in their pursuit of that, so they don't seek out God. Then he says that they have gone out of the way. The, the phrase rendered there is, is from a verb that conveys the idea of deliberately avoiding something. It's a strong word, and it means more than just they accidentally lost their way or they missed the way or somehow they, they've gone unintentionally out of the way that they should have been in, it, it means that they sought out the wrong way. They have deliberately gone out of the way. They, they Just as much as they didn't seek God, just as much as they didn't pursue God, just as much as they didn't pursue the knowledge of God, with that same intention, they sought out the wrong way. They sought out a way that takes them away from God. They sought out a way that was contrary to God. And because of that, he says, they become unprofitable or worthless or useless. That's the interpretation of the word. It's unprofitable, of no use, of no worth. And he says, none of them does good. So, just to make sure everyone understands, no one is excluded from those charges. And he ends it with, no, not one. All of humanity, everyone, all of them have 
acted as if they don't understand. They've, they've not sought God. They've gone out of their way. They've, they've become unprofitable, and none of them does good. Verse 13 says, Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now, Paul turns away from their actions to their poisonous character. He, he draws now from Psalm chapter 5 and verse 9, and he uses the words out of that psalm, the throats and open, open sepulchers. He says that the throats of the wicked are like open sepulchers or open graves, an open tomb. An open tomb may be thought of as being ready to receive the dead. You, you don't dig a grave unless you're, you're getting ready to put a dead person in it. Their, their throats are like open tombs. In other words, their speech is deadly. They, they're ready to destroy the people who listen to them. With their words, they dig a grave for them. They're like open sepulchers. Now, it's not clear why the psalmist used the word throat instead of mouth. Uh, Paul is quoting the psalmist here, and the psalmist used the word throat instead of the word mouth. It would seem more normal to say their mouth is like an open sepulcher than to say that their throat is like an open sepulcher. But perhaps the psalmist wanted to indicate a very deep-seated evil. It's more than just they've opened their mouth. It goes deeper than that. It goes all the way down to their throats. From the depth of their throat, they produce this deadly speech that ensnares, that entraps, that is like an open tomb waiting for somebody to fall in it. Also, following the language of the psalm, Paul moves next to a more obvious organ of speech, the tongue. And in light of the connection to sepulchers, it's interesting to note that Proverbs 18 and 21 tells us that both life and death are in the tongue. And so Paul says that with their tongues, they use deceit. It's part of this open grave thing. With their, with their tongues, they, they use their tongues for treachery. They use their tongues for deceit. They use their tongues to destroy and tear down. The rest of the verse is a quotation from Psalm 140 and verse 3. It says, the poison of asps is under their lips. The point is that wicked people speak evil, poisonous things. Their words are like the venom of vipers. This connects well with the idea of open sepulchers again. It connects well back to the idea that their, their open mouths are like open graves and their, their tongue speaks deceit and treachery and their words are venomous like that of a viper. Pretty strong language not Paul's language, it's the language of the word of God. He's quoting from the Psalms. Verse 14, he moves on and says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now this quotation comes from Psalm chapter 10 and verse 7 and Paul is complaining that those of whom he speaks, they do more than utter a bitter curse every now and again. Their mouth is full of bitterness and cursing. They're that kind of speech is habitual to them. It's, it, it's what they do. Their mouth is full of that foul speech. And then verse 15 through 17 we'll take together because uh, they, they again draw from a, the same quotation. It says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
and the way of peace have they not known. That is a shortened uh, version of Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, where Isaiah uh, speaks of the evil men that he pronounces judgment on them. It starts with a reference to their feet. It says that their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, what Paul's not, he's not saying that when they're pushed into a corner, when they're driven to it, they'll go to extraordinary measures. They'll, they'll take desperate measures to defend themselves or defend their family, and they don't mind to shed blood in the defense of those things that are precious to them. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that they're eager for homicide. They're eager for murder. They're eager to shed blood. Their, their feet are swift to run to that kind of action. And they're, 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 there's something in them that has absolutely no reservation. Not just doesn't have reservation, but is swift to run to that kind of action to, to draw blood, to shed blood. Because of this, he says, destruction and misery are in their ways. The first word, destruction, points to destructive activities. The second word, misery, points to the wretchedness that follows destructive activities. The things they do result in misery. And the third word, ways, refers to a manner of life. What Paul is saying is they don't just engage in wrong acts from time to time. This is the way they live. They live in such a way that destruction and misery are characteristic of their lives. It is their way. It is how they conduct themselves. It is how they carry themselves. It is how they live. Now, verse 17 also tells us that there is another way that you could live. This way they live is a way of destruction and misery, but there is a way of peace. But that way of peace is a way that is foreign to them. It's not just a way they don't... It's not just another option that they've chosen not to walk in. It is a way that they don't even know about. They don't even know about the way of peace. They, they've not even known of such a thing. There is a better way to live, but they don't even have the knowledge of that better way to live. Their interest is in bloodshed and destruction and misery, not in peace. Now, one thing to note here, we've taken these verses rather fast because they're just descriptions of a sinful man. But one thing to note here is that sin not only separates people from God, it separates people from people. It drives a wedge between humanity Bloodshed, destruction, misery, deceit, open graves. All of these things that characterize not their the relationship with God, but the relationship with people around them. And this division that is between them and God finds its expression and, and, and spills out into their life. And it divides them from each other. See, sin is, sin is this thing that you, you can't control it and you can't 
You, you're not ever going to, you, you, you think I, I can isolate it to a certain portion of my life and, and I'll do this and it'll only affect this. It never only affects that little portion of your life. It always spills out into everything else. Man, things I can, I can turn my back on God and that's just between me and God, but it's never just between you and God. It falls into every other area of your life. Every relationship is affected by sin. It affects everything. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that passage is a quotation from Psalm 36 and 1. It's the last quotation, the last verse that Paul uses of the Old Testament. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We're told in Proverbs chapter 1, in verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what Paul's saying is they don't just lack wisdom. They don't even have wisdom starting point. They don't even have what it takes to start in the journey towards wisdom. They don't have any fear of God. That's a dangerous place to be. Now, the word fear here, doesn't just mean reverence or respect. It's not, it's not a relatively uh, mild term that means to respect somebody. The word fear here relates to terror. It's absolute fear. And, and the point here is that the evil men would do well to fear God, not respect God, to be afraid of him. Because God is going to be the one that judges their soul. They would do well to have a healthy fear of God. You know, it's not a bad thing to have a, a, a fear of God. There's not a bad thing to understand that I, I, God is going to be my judge. God is going to be the one who stands over me. Amen. If I reject him, if I turn my back on him, if I spurn him, amen, uh, God is love. And yes, he is, but God is judgment too. And one of these days he's going to judge and his wrath is going to be poured out. And if the blood of Jesus isn't there, that blood is so important because Jesus Christ on the cross uh, absorbed the wrath of God. All of the anger of God is sin. All of the wrath of God at sin was poured out on the cross of Calvary. But if I don't have that blood in my life, one of these days I'm going to be subject to that same wrath. It's a fearful thing to consider what it means to fall into the hands of a living God. That's what Paul's saying. You ought to have a, a fear of God. You ought to have a, a, not just a respect for who he is, not just a, like you respect the President of the United States. It's a fear, an understanding that, that he is the absolute judge of my life. He's going to determine my eternal destiny. But these men have no fear. They flaunt God. They have absolutely no fear of God. Verse 19 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Having finished quoting the Bible, 
Paul now considers another possible objection that the Jewish antagonist might come up with. He, the antagonist might say, well, all of those scriptures you just quoted are true, but they deal with the Gentiles, not the Jews. They're about Gentiles. They're not about Jews. And so to refute that, Paul appeals to common knowledge. He says, we know. It's, it's an accepted thing. We all know this. We all understand this. We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to those who are under the law. That what things soever is comprehensive. It's, it's everything that the law says. Nothing in the law is excluded. Everything that the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So the Jews centered themselves on the law. They had their whole being in the law. The law is everything to them. So Paul is saying you can't have it both ways. You can't reject the, the admonition of Scripture. You can't reject these particular quotes and say they don't pertain to you. If the law pertains to anybody, it pertains to you. If the law is addressed to anyone, it is addressed to those who are under the law, not those who are outside of the sphere of the law. So Paul's point here is that the Jew cannot rest on an imagined security. He cannot believe that he is safe while the Gentile will come under the judgment of God. The law under which he lives, the law that is addressed to him, the law on which he prides himself, that law is given to him and not to other people, and it convicts him just as well as it convicts the rest of the world. That's the point. He said that, and the last half of this verse says that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That final phrase, all the world is convicted. Not just the Gentiles. All the world. Everybody. The whole world stands guilty before God. Now the phrase before that indicates the purpose that every mouth may be stopped. No one is going to stand in judgment and issue a defense. Nobody is going to stand before God and plead their innocence. The evidence is going to be overwhelming. It will silence all opposition. The evidence will cause the world to fall silent that every mouth will be stopped as the world recognizes that all are guilty before God all have sinned all have come short now one interesting thing to note about the word translated guilty is that it refers to the person who has not been judged yet but who knows that what he has done is wrong and that in due course he must answer for it see the Jews recognized that they would give an account to God for themselves 
but they did not see themselves as guilty. For them, it was a foregone conclusion that they would be saved even though they had done wrong. What Paul is objecting to is that mindset. The whole world, without exception, will be silent as it comes under God's conviction. They will know that it has nothing to say in its defense, that it is guilty before God. Everyone. Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The consequence is that no one will be accepted before God on account of his observance of the law. The works of the law aren't going to save anybody. Paul makes the same case in Galatians. No one can be saved on the basis of good works. No one can be saved on the basis of strict obedience to the law because no sin can be remitted by the law. The Gentiles had the law of conscience. The Jews had the law of Moses. But in neither case did the law prevent them from sinning. In neither case did the law save them from their sin. And in neither case can the law forgive them of their sins. Instead, the law condemns them. They're condemned by the law. They broke the law. The law stands as that, that standard that says that they have done wrong, they have transgressed, and the law itself condemns them. No amount of keeping the law, no amount of performance of good works is going to compensate for the fact that they have violated the law. They have broken God's law, and the law cannot forgive them. The law can only condemn them. To make that last point clear, verse 20 mentions the purpose of the law, which is explained much more fully later on in the book of Romans. But Paul says that the law has a purpose. It, 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 it does not mediate. It doesn't save us. It doesn't deliver us. The law imparts the knowledge of sin. It does so in at least three ways. First of all, the law shows man what sin is. Second of all, it shows man that he is a sinner. Once you see what sin is, then you see that you fall short. And third of all, it shows man that he needs salvation. That's the purpose of the law. Through the law, man becomes aware of the definition of sin he becomes aware of the consequences of sin and he becomes aware of the existence of his own sinful nature and he begins to realize that in his own power he cannot measure up to God's holy requirement. He doesn't, he doesn't stack up next to the law. He falls short. Ultimately, the law proves to man that he cannot obtain righteousness without the grace of God. 
So Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, the law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. We've said it so many times that the cross is the center of the word of God. Everything before it points to it. The whole intent and purpose of the law is to bring man to the place to see the cross, to understand that he needs salvation. He needs the grace of God. Someone once said that the best way to show that a stick is crooked is to lay it next to a straight stick. The law is that straight stick. It is the thing that shows us just how crooked we are. That demonstrates to us just how badly we need a Savior. What Paul has done in the first little bit of this book, and we're in the 20th verse of chapter 3, and we've laid now the foundation. This is the point of transition. This ends a doctrinal section. And the point of this whole section, chapter 1, chapter 2, and so far in chapter 3, is to bring you to this conclusion. We need a Savior. Every man, woman, and child, whoever lived, needs a Savior. All of us fall short. All of us have sinned. And all of us need the grace of God. She was commissioned in 1936. Her Royal Majesty's ship, the Queen Mary, was the most awe-inspiring, ocean-going vessel in the world. She was over a 1,000 feet long, and she displaced twice the water that the Titanic displaced. She had 12 decks. She carried nearly 2,000 passengers and had a crew of over 1,000. In the dark days of World War II, she was transformed from a luxury liner to a troop transport, and she carried three-quarters of a million British soldiers to and from the war. The Queen Mary was retired from regular passenger service in 1967 after making just over a 1,000 trips across the Atlantic Ocean. She is presently harbored, harbored in the port of Long Beach, California, and today her magnificent and gleaming exterior is a beautiful profile against the blue waters of the Long Beach Harbor. But when the Queen Mary was retired from active passenger service, it was discovered that part of her gleaming exterior was hiding something far less attractive. She had three elliptical smokestacks on her deck. They were 36 feet long, 23 feet wide, and ranged in height from 62 feet to 70 feet. They were made of sheets of steel that were an inch thick. During her decades of service, at least 30 coats of paint had been applied to those massive smokestacks, forming a shell of paint around the steel interior. Whenever they decided to restore the ship and brought her into the harbor, they brought in canes, cranes, to lift those massive smokestacks from her deck. It was discovered that they were nothing more than shells of what they had formerly been. 
those cranes lifted those massive pieces of steel and placed them on the docks. And when they placed them on the docks, they crumbled under their own weight and fell to pieces. Over the years, that inch-thick steel had turned to rust for the long exposure to heat and moisture and the exhaust of the engines. And over the years, they had been painted 30-plus times. And they were pristine and beautiful on the outside. But the well-kept exterior of the smokestacks concealed a rusty, eroded interior that spoke not of beauty and elegance, but of deterioration and decay. They were literally eaten apart from the inside out. And when those cranes lifted them, from the deck of the Queen Mary, the only thing that was holding them together was the paint. There was nothing left of that solid steel structure that had been the strength of those smokestacks. That external beauty that had been painted on from the outside, that external glory that had been applied from the outside was the only thing holding it together behind that facade the reality was a rusty decrepit decayed shell of what had once been therein lies the crux of the issue that Paul addresses in these first portion of Romans chapter 1 and 2 and now the first part of chapter 3 the arrogant Jew has demonstrated that it is possible to present a well-polished exterior that seems to reflect the holiness of God while on the inside, the heart is really far from anything that resembles holiness and righteousness. The arrogant Jew has missed the purpose of the law. He's missed the purpose of the whole thing. He's seized on the letter of the law. And he has maintained the outward appearance. But he has never grasped the heart of the law. And he's ignored the inner man. I come to tell you on a Sunday morning that if we're not careful, we could fall in the same trap. We understand that God will have a church in this world that is separated unto him. God will have a bride that is without spot and without blemish. God will have a people who belong to him, who have been called out of darkness, out of this world, who have been called apart and set apart for his glory, who walk in his marvelous light. That means my life will be different from the world. That means that I'm a stranger here. I'm a pilgrim here. What those those, those those uh, uh, illustrations used in Scripture from the very foundations from Abraham forward, the people of God are described as strangers and pilgrims. That means my, my customs are different. My mannerisms are different. The way I speak is different. The way I dress is different. I'm a stranger in a strange land. I don't belong here. There's always going to be something different about the church. My manners, my custom, everything about the church by nature is different from the world. We're strangers here. We're pilgrims here. 
We're just passing through. Holiness does matter. Godly living does matter. Standards do matter. But if we're not careful, we can get bogged down in the mechanics of holiness and miss the heart of the issue. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about allowing his grace to shine in our lives. It's not just about having a godly exterior. It's not just about putting 30 coats of paint on a smokestack. It's really about having a heart that seeks God, that walks with God, that knows God, that's in fellowship with God. It's not just about painting the outside and making it attractive. It's about maintaining what's on the inside. Holiness starts on the inside. Holiness starts in the heart. Holiness starts in your relationship with God. From there, it affects everything else. From there, it affects the outside. From there, it affects the things you do, the things you say, the places you go. It affects every portion of your life, but it starts in your heart. It starts in your walk with God. It starts in your relationship with God. Human nature gets it backwards. Human nature thinks that if I make the outside pretty, then that demonstrates that the inside is right too. Human nature thinks if I, if I can dress up the exterior, then somehow that affects the interior. But that's not the case at all. The heart of the issue is the condition of your heart. The heart of the issue is your relationship with God. If you get your heart right, if you get the relationship right, if you get, if you get that, that that's on the inside right, then everything else flows from a heart that is in right relationship with God. And the end result will be holiness, righteousness, There may be no difference between the smokestack that's maintained from the inside and the smokestack that's maintained from the outside when you look upon it from the outside. They may look the same, but the difference is critical. The difference is important. The inward reality is what really matters. We can all dress up our Sunday best and come to church and put on our Sunday morning coat of paint. And we can hide a whole lot of things. But what I'm asking you this morning is to get past the multiple coats of paint that are holding the thin shell together and really get down to the heart of the issue. How's your relationship with God? Where is your heart? What does it look like on the inside? How is your walk with God? How is your prayer life? What about your dedication and fasting, your Bible reading, and those things that you just kind of know you ought to do while you maintain that outward expression, but you ignore the inward man? While you maintain a hole in the shell of what should be, while on the inside you're far from what you know you should be? If your walk with God is in a state of decay 
and deterioration. And your outside is attractive. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and called them whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. The outside appearance is, is just right. But the inside is far from God. I'm asking you on a Sunday morning, if you stand with me, musicians, if you would come. In conclusion of this portion, this doctrinal portion of Romans chapter 1, 2, and then part of chapter 3, we arrive at the conclusion that what we need is the grace of God. What we need is the blood of Jesus. What we need is something that only He can give to us. Holiness is not something I craft with my own hands. It's not just a list of standards I live by. It's not just a list of rules or where I go and what I don't do and what I do do and what I say and what I all of that, none of that. That's not what holiness is. It's something that grows out of my heart that separates me to God.